Welcome to History Class After Hours. I'm Joseph Barra, and joining me today is Brian. Hello. Woo. Hello. Today we are talking about the Essex, or the true story behind Melville's tale, Moby Dick. So, a little bit of an intro. Whaling was a major industry in the 18th and 19th centuries. Uh, whale's blubber was used to make oil, which was used as the primary lubricant during the early stages of the Industrial Revolution. Also, um, they made candles out of it. I mean, you know, a lot of whale fat probably burns pretty they well. Said, they said it's one of like the finest candles in the world, like whale, whale blubber candles. I wouldn't know. But anyway, so the industry revolved around the island of Nantucket, which is on the East Coast. Uh, Nantucket would first turn to whaling in 1712 because they could not grow anything. So they're like, <laughs> all right, let's go after whales. Um, whalers, their, their prize... A uh, whale that they were going after was the sperm whale. Uh, that's because they have a massive cavity in their head that is filled with a waxy oil. I mean, you know, go for the And they're like, all right, oil. oil. That's what we want. This thing's got a lot of it. Actually, the oil protects its brain because it can dive about a mile underneath the surface of the sea because they hunt giant squid. Wow. And they got massive teeth. Damn. Also, they sold their teeth, too. So unlike the United States at the time, whaling industry was not segregated. African-Americans were allowed to serve on ships, and some would even become captains of ships. Uh, but life on whaling ships were dangerous and difficult. Uh, many of the men would join because the pay was good. Oftentimes, you were gone for like two and a half years. So these weren't just like going around the corner, killing a whale, and coming back. Like they were going out to like the Pacific. Man. Yeah. Uh, whalers would sail long distances because they had to find the whales, and... They almost hunted them into extinction, so they were getting harder and harder to find. Um, once they found them, they'd send out little boats with about six men on board. Uh, they would carry harpoons. The harpoons would be attached to the boats by ropes and then thrown towards the whale. They would tire out the whale, which would eventually drown. The whales would then be towed back to the main ship where it would be processed. So that is what whaling looked like. So the year is 1819, and the whaling fleet on Nantucket was looking to get back in the game. The War of 1812 had basically ravaged the whaling fleet. Uh, it was now up to 61 ships, and new grounds have been found 17,000 miles away in the Central Pacific. So that's going to be quite a journey from Nantucket. So the Essex, which is the ship we'll be talking about, uh, was set for those grounds on August 12th in search of the sperm whale. The ship was 238 tons, had three masts, and it had enough provisions for a two-and-a-half-year cruise. And what this means is they literally had enough food on the boat and water on the boat to not leave the boat for two-and-a-half years. Um, that, would, that would be miserable. That would be miserable. Just stuck there for two-and-a-half years. Yeah. Yes. Man. Not getting off. The captain of the ship was George Pollard, who had been recently promoted from first mate. The rest of the crew consists of 21 men, uh, and his first mate is going to be Owen Chase. Keep Owen Chase in mind because a lot of this story comes from his accounts. He's actually going to write what's going to happen, write down what's going to happen. So for the first 15 months of the journey, nothing out of the ordinary happened other than the typical storms, bruises, and smashed whale boats. Uh, for the first couple of months, the ship hunted on the traditional grounds off the coast of Chile and Peru. They were able to get eight whales. The ship would spring a leak 
and they would have to make an emergency stop at the Galapagos Islands to fix it. There, they stocked up on large tortoises that inhabited the island. They just picked them up and said, all right, we're going to eat these at some point. Kind of like the dodo bird. Just, you know. They're, they're yeah. Eating. I'm pretty sure the tortoises are still there, though. They are, yeah. yeah. They did not hunt the tortoises into extinction. No. Much like the dodo bird. We I need believe. to bring back the dodo bird somehow. Is that Madagascar? Is that where dodo birds were? Uh, I thought they were in the Caribbean. Oh. Well. I don't know. They're not there anymore. That's all I know. Uh, the ship would head westward along the equator. On November 20th, 1820, they were on the new hunting grounds. On the grounds, uh, this is where the Essex is going to meet its fate. Two of the ship's whaleboats were out sea hunting. Captain Pollard was manning one boat and second mate Matthew Joy on a second. Owen Chase was on the third and just returned to the Essex to make repairs. Uh, while fixing the boat, Chase looked up and saw a sperm whale a ship's length away from the bow of the Essex. A full-grown sperm whale can grow more than 80 feet long, and its head can become a 20-foot battering ram filled with that oil. The oil is actually used by the whale to protect its brain as it dives a mile beneath the sea to catch giant squid. Chase was not alarmed by the sight. Um, as he had never seen a whale attack a ship the size of the Essex. Whale boats, yes, but the Essex, no. Just as Chase was giving the command to shear off from the whale, the whale struck the bow with its head. The ship rocked violently in the waves. Much to the crew's bewilderment, the whale turned around, headed back, take another shot at the boat. The whale, having passed under the Essex, had turned around to attack it once more with twice its ordinary speed, and to me at the moment, it appeared with tenfold fury and vengeance in his aspect, said Chase. This time, the whale caved in the bow. The eight men on board the Essex quickly gathered supplies and jumped into the whale boat in shock. They quiet, quietly watched as the Essex capsized and just kind of floated there. So it didn't sink. It's just floating upside down for the most part. The rest of the crew soon returned astonished. Um, the first to see the scene was to stare on Captain Pollard's boat. He would cry, where is the ship? Captain Pollard leaped, leapt to his feet after one shocking glimpse of his uh, capsized Essex with the mast and sails dipping in the sea. He fell back into the boat completely speechless. He's just like, what just happened? Pulling himself together, he called out his first mate, Mr. Chase, what is the matter? He answered. We have been stove by a whale, basically, which means run into. It was indeed what Chase was to call a sudden, most mysterious and overwhelming calamity. Disaster had struck the crew in the worst possible location. The nearest, nearest land to the east was the coast of Peru, which was 2,400 miles away. Um, they were literally in the middle of nowhere. And like no one knows where they and are. And no one knows where they're at. They're, where they're at in the Pacific Ocean, the currents aren't running west to east they're running east to west and they're like in doldrums so there's not a whole lot of wind the closest land was actually antarctica Man. and that was super far away uh consulting their navigation manuals the steward had rescued um had rescued while chase snatched two compasses before abandoning the ship two chief officers of the essex were well aware that Marquesa Islands laid 1,500 miles southwest of them, but they fear that the islands were inhabited by cannibals. So what you're seeing is um, these guys are extremely naive, and they think they've heard these tales of cannibals in the Pacific, 
So they think like every island is full of cannibals. That's one of the reasons why they pack two and a half years of supplies is so they wouldn't have to go on these islands. Um, in reality, though, the islands had been claimed by the United States in 1813, and the islanders were extremely friendly. <laughs> Oops. Uh, Pollard decided to make an attempt to sail uh, 1,900 miles south, where he then could catch westerly winds that would take him 2,200 2, miles due east of Chile. So he's doing an L. He's like, we got to go south before we can get to trade winds that will take us west. Uh, such was the prospect that lay before the 20 shipwrecked men of the Essex, a 4,100-mile voyage in three open whale boats, 500 miles farther than even um, what Captain Bly had done on the Bounty. So the Bounty um, was an English ship. The crew had a mutiny. They overthrew the captain. Several people stayed with the captain. Captain Bly, Bly kind of floated out in the Pacific Ocean for a while until he was rescued. Okay, so this is going to be 500 miles farther than that. Man, that's that's a lot. That's a lot farther. All right. So, um, the the keep this in mind too. The, the the guys that stole the bounty, they go to what is now called Pickering Island. They sink the boat and they set up their own little community there. All right. Remember this. It's going to come back. All right. Um, the boats that the whalers had were also far inferior to what Bly had. They were not buoyant and quite flimsy. They weren't. They were they were built knowing they were probably going to get destroyed in hunting. So they didn't put a whole lot of craftsmanship in them. Um, all that stood between a whaleboat's crew in the ocean depths was a half inch of overlapping cedar planks. Um, in these boats, the men were trying to travel 4,000 miles through shark-infested water and tropical gales. Um, they also had a little mast. They had a little sail that you could put up. I don't think it would do that no, much. No, no. Plus, uh, didn't you say there was, like, no wind? Yeah, there's no wind where yeah. they're at right now. So they're, they're not... They're, yeah. They're in, they're in trouble. Yeah. Uh, one thing that had worked in their favor, though, is the ship had not fully sank. They were able to cut into the hull and gather some supplies. They retrieved 600 pounds of bread, 135 gallons of water, six live turtles or tortoises. You need the tortoises. One musket, two pistols, some carpenter tools, and two pounds of nails. They also got two compasses, two quadrants, two manuals of practical navigation. Um, and that is what they were able to have. But the Ch tortoises are more The tortoises are really important, yeah. Chase believed they had about 60 days worth of supplies. Most of the men were still in shock as night became day. They weren't able to eat or sleep. Next morning, they were cheered up by the sun. The men of the Essex uh, completed the final preparations for their desperate open voyage. Uh, stripping spars and light sails from the wreck, they rigged each whaleboat with a second mast and some more sails. For protection against the high seas, they got cedar planks from the Essex and added six inches to the size of their boats. Uh, there was nothing left, left to do, yet the shipwrecked men made no move to embark. They were not ready to cut the umbilical rope that still bound them to the mothership. Wrecked and sucking as she was, said Chase, we could scarcely discard from our minds the idea of her continuing protection. Instead, as Captain Pollard recalled a few years later, we continued sitting in our places, gazing upon the ship as though she had been an object of tenderest affection. The looming terrors of the immense journey before them the thought of their frail open boats and sheer awesome loneliness of the indifferent sea paralyzed the men of the Essex for 24 more hours. So basically three days pass and they're just chilling here 
tied to the Essex, not going anywhere. They're still in shock. Uh, they I were mean, ter- I would be too, honestly. I'd, I'd be like, kind of got to go here. I mean, after – That's like, three days' supplies that just burned through. I mean, also, you've probably been on the ship for like a year by now yeah. anyway. So you feel like some kind of attachment to it. So they were determined to keep the three boats together. Uh, Chase will say, by a desperate instinct and hungry for the comfort each crew derived from the sight of their fellow sufferers a few boats, boat lengths away. The daily rations per man was half a pint of water, one-eighth normal shipboard allotment, and a biscuit weighing up one pound, three ounces. At night, in stormy weather, three boat commanders performed prodigies of seamanship to keep the little fleet together. In rough seas, they were compelled to bail water out constantly. And relatively calm, they patched up little leaks that seemed to spring up uh, just randomly throughout the horribly made boats. Only three days after cutting loose from the ethics, the crew started to realize the issue with the fragility of their boats. Chase's boats was well below the waterline when the boat sprung another leak. They quickly patched it with the cedar plank. Everyone knew, however, one loose nail could sink the boat. Three days later, Chase's boat had to rush over to help Captain Pollard's that came under attack from a 12-foot fish. I'm assuming that's a great white. Like, I don't think just a normal fish. Yeah, I, I got 12 feet. I got to think it's a shark of some sort. Yeah, probably. All right. Um, the men's progress was very slow. 16 days in after leaving the wreckage, they had traveled 600 miles. So they were traveling about 40 miles a day. Not a blistering pace. Once they got to the 25th latitude, they could hope to make swifter progress, but the first signs of starvation were already beginning to appear. Their limbs started to get weak, and their stomachs started to make horrible noises. On December 10th, some flying flit uh, that's hard to say really fast. Flying fish struck Chase's boat and fell in. The men devoured them alive, bones, scales, and all. This is just like a feeding frenzy. Uh, the only thing that brought solace to the men was the weather. It was late spring, so it was not uncomfortably warm yet. But summer was soon approaching, and that was going to change. From the 11th to the 16th, there was not a cloud in the sky, and the tropical sun just beat down on the men. The men were rationed one half pint of water a day, which left them parched. Their lips began to swell up and begin to cr- began to crack. To escape the increasing heat, some men would just jump overboard and hang on the side of the ship. But the problem is the men in the boat were so weak, it would typically take three to pull them back in. Like they're deteriorating fast. Yeah. On December 14th, Chase would make a decision based off an estimate uh, he made on how much distance the men had left to go. He's going to cut the rations even more. The men would now only get half a biscuit and a quarter pint of water a day. People are probably going to start dying soon. Yeah. Yeah. As precaution, Chase kept the supplies by his side and slept with a loaded pistol in his hand to fight off anyone who attempted to steal food during the night. Under the leadership, though, uh, the discipline on the boat remained firm. When December 20th hit, two things became clear to Chase. First leg of the journey was complete. Now the men could begin heading east. Second, he realized he didn't have enough supplies to make it east. Of the six emaciated men on Chase's boat, two had already abandoned hope and were sunk in apathy, utterly indifferent to their fate, just waiting to die. Then at 7 a.m., one of Chase's men shouted, there is land. At the eve, at the, basically, all the men jumped up and they started cheering. And they're like, yes, we found land. Um, 
It appeared at first as a low white beach recall chase and lay like a basking paradise before our longing eyes. It took four hours of sailing to reach it. It took every ounce of strength for the hunger-depleted men to crawl out of their boats and get to shore. When they reached it, they flung themselves on the ground in blissful relief and thanksgiving. They believed to have reached Ducey Island. In fact, they had been blown 200 miles off course, and they were now on an uncharted island that is now known as Henderson's Island. They were still 3,200 miles away from Chile. So they, they made barely any progress. Correct. Yeah. But... They found land. They found land. And in reality, they're only 120 miles from Pickering Island. Is that the... That's where the bounty people are. Yeah. The mutiny of the bounty people. But they don't know that. I think I see where this is yeah. going. So when the men began to forage for food, they quickly discovered the island was less than desirable to live. Uh, they only found small amounts, birds, eggs, berries, some grasses, and some crabs. But... More importantly, the island they believed lacked fresh water. This became cruel. There was just enough food to survive, but not enough water. The next day, in a state of frenzy, the men crawled over the rocky hills, inspecting every crack and crevice, hammering at the rock itself, trying to find some type of spring water. Once again, they found nothing. That evening, Captain Polar told his weary and disheartened men that unless they found water the next morning, they had no choice but to abandon the treacherous island and throw themselves once again into the sea. Following morning, after a few more hours of search, Chase was ready to give up. Then he heard happy cries from the beach. Someone had at last found water. At one moment, I felt an almost choking excess of joy. The next, I wanted the relief of a flood of tears. Henderson Island had a hidden treasure, which was um, basically there was a spring, but it only showed up during low tide. Mm. And it was low tide, and they had found it out. All right. Um, and this would happen twice daily. So they were able to get water. So they're going to stay around, fill up their depleted water kegs and try to get as much food as they could find. Um, but what's happening is they are they're expending actually more calories than they're taking in because the food they're finding isn't enough. Um, on Christmas Day, they're fifth on the island. Um, they were basically out of food. So on that day, a general council, the survivors of the Essex made a hard decision. It would have been easy enough to sail the boats to another part of the island and begin foraging afresh from there. But um, they were like, we, we have to go. We have to go on the sea. We're going to run out of water again. We don't have food. We got we to gotta make this work. All right. Um, and what helped them make this decision was they had found a cave and there was eight skeletons in there from a previous shipwreck. Like eight. Oh, human. human. Yeah, human wow. remains. And they're like, ooh, they didn't make it. We probably won't either. All right. Um, so what's going to happen is all but three men are going to go ahead on this second leg of the journey. Three men are going to stay behind. They're like, no, we're not getting back on these boats. We'll take our chances here. Okay. So for the second and final leg of their voyage, Pollard and Chase now sketched out a confident course. Instead of making blindly for the remote South American coast, they intended to go to Easter Island which was 900 miles from Ducey and actually 1,100 miles from where they're actually at. If they missed the speck in, in the sea, though, they would still have 2,000 miles to go before they hit South America. They're, so, they're, they're making that gamble. Yeah. On December 27th, the 17 survivors would take out their whale boats. For the next seven days, the boats would sail together on their way to Easter Island. 
On January 3rd, the men would be caught in a very heavy storm, and the storm would blow them farther off their course. The commanders decided to change course as a result and steer for the island of Juan Fernandez. The men had lost hope and started to succumb to starvation. The first man to die was second mate Matthew Joy. On the 11th of January, 1821, his body was sewn up in his clothes, weighted with a stone, and given a proper burial at sea. Two nights later, the men were hit by another storm. This time, the boats are going to separate, um, and Chase won't see the other two boats again. So now he's on his own. On January 14th, he made new calculations and believed they had 900 miles, or they had traveled 900 miles since leaving Henderson Island. He believed at that rate, it would take five more weeks to reach Juan Fernandez. Based off these calculations, he's going to cut rations once again. The five men on his boat now had to survive off a half an ounce of bread a day and very little water. That, oh, man. The men were approaching a state of unbearable misery. Painful boils broke out on their wasted flesh. Basically, their skin was cracking. It's just a bad situation. Um, too weak to stand up, standing brought on blinding vertigo. They're so lightheaded that when they stand up, they just get dizzy and fall back down. Um, on January 15th, a hungry shark began chomping at the boat. Someone grabbed the lance. That was what they used to harpoon the whales um, to try to kill it. He hit, the, he hit the shark with the harpoon, but he's so weak, he can't. It just bounces off. So they're, they're, that's how bad things have gotten. Uh, Mother Nature would begin pulling cool, cruel tricks on the men as well. Some days there would be a strong wind. Next day, none at all. So they get all excited and then nothing. Uh, one night, when they came upon a shoal of whales, the men cowered for hours in the bottom of the boat, terrified that the, one of the whales may destroy it. As bad as things were, Chase tried to remain positive for the good of his men. But on January 20th, Richard Peterson quietly told Chase he would give up his rations, that he had made the decision he'd rather die than endure any further misery. Peterson would calmly lay back in the boat, and within a couple minutes, was, he was dead. He stopped breathing. Like just a couple minutes yeah. after yeah. how just that's how weak they are. He's man. like, I'm done. Yeah. Just gave up. Uh, next he's going to get a proper burial at sea. So now there's uh, four people left in Chase's boat. They were now according to Chase reckoning uh, Chase's reckoning 1300 miles from Juan Fernandez, 1600 miles from Chile. By February 7th, the men uh, had only about three days of food left and still hundred miles to go. On the morning of February 8th, Cole went mad called wildly for a napkin and water, and then fell back senseless into the boat of the bottom of the boat. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Seven hours later, uh, after suffering, suffering hideous convulsions, Cole passed away. The next morning, when his mates began preparing his body for a sea burial, Chase told his two remaining men the decision he had reached in the night. The mortal remains of Isaac Cole must not be consigned to the sea. It was the food that might yet save them. There was no argument. At once, the three men started to cut away parts of Cole's body. Um, some of the raw flesh was actually eaten at, without cooking it. And they then began cooking parts of Cole on a rock that they had taken from Henderson Island. So remember, these were the people that were so fearful of going to islands because cannibals had lived there. And now they're, now they're the cannibals. Ones. Yeah. It's like the Donner Party all over again. Mm -hmm. 
The very worst that Chase had feared, however, had already befallen the comrades from the other two boats. As early as January 14th, the five men left on the second mate's boat had run out of food entirely and been kept alive by the scant provisions still left on Captain Pollard's boat. So Pollard's actually giving them provisions from his boat to help them out. Tells you what type of man he was. Um, on January 21st, not a single ounce of bread was left on the captain's boat. After two days without a scrap of food, starvation brought death to one Lawson Thomas on the second mate's boat. His surviving boatmates ate him. Uh, between the 25th and 28th of January, three more men died, and they were eaten as well. Then on the night of January 28th, a storm separated Pollard's group from the three men still alive in the other boat. They were never heard from again. Soon Pollard's boat ran out of human remains. The men decided to draw straws. One straw was labeled executioner. One straw was labeled victim. And how many people were there? Four. Your chances aren't that good. Yeah. A man named Ramsdell drew the executioner straw. The cabin boy, Owen Cotton, drew the victim straw. Cotton was executed and then eaten. How did they execute him? Shot him in the head. Oh, yeah, he still has they the pistol. They have a pistol, yeah. yeah. On the 11th, another crew member passed away and was consumed by Pollard and Ramsdale. So there's two guys left in that boat. By now, the horror-haunted whale boats of the Essex, the captains and the first mates, were sailing on a perfectly parallel course with Chase's boat some 300 miles north. On both boats, the suffering and the horrors appear to have been born in vain. On February 18th, three men were still alive on Owen Chase's boat, but all their... Carefully hoarded food was gone. Chile was still 300 miles away. That morning, Chase was dozing at the rudder while 17-year-old Thomas Nicholson lay in the bottom of the boat covered with canvas praying for death. It would have come to him swiftly enough had the third man aboard suddenly cried out, there's a sail. Chase instantly awoken, struggled to his feet to his gaze and said in a state of abstraction and ecstasy upon the blessed vision of a vessel seven miles off, it was the brig Indian out of London. A few more miles tense sailing and the hideous ordeal was over for Chase and his comrades. They had been out at sea for 83 days in their little boats and they had traveled 4,500 miles. Moreover, in a superb feat of navigation, Chase had brought his men from Henderson's Island only within a few miles of Juan Fernandez. So they had almost actually made it to Juan Fernandez. But then they saw the boat. But then they saw the boat. Five days later, Pollard and Ramsdell are going to be rescued 100 miles from where the Chilean coast was. So they almost made it. Um, and this becomes the tale of Moby Dick, which was re written by Herman Melville. Um, of the 17 men who had pushed off from Henderson's Island, only five had survived, all of them from Nantucket. Because they did, the three castaways on Henderson's Island were, survived, were basically rescued as well. Um, by the end of 1821, all five survivors were back home, health and strength completely restored. All of them will actually return to the sea and continue the profession of whaling. After that. After I that. Mean, yeah. I, how, how, how do you do that? That's like surviving a plane crash and then getting right back on a plane the next week. I don't know how you're able to do that. In time, all four of Captain Pollard's surviving crewmen were going to be commanding their own whale ships. Um, and they enjoy prosperity and live long lives. And they act like nothing happened. Um, of their brutal ordeal, they gave few outward signs. Although Chase in later years became uh, prey to harmless compulsion. Um, when he died, they found like his attic was filled with like crackers and little bits of food that he was like hiding away. 
Only Captain Pollard himself was dogged by misfortune. Uh, he goes whaling again, and his boat sinks again. Man, that <laughs> that's just that's bad luck. Yeah, yeah. Uh, this, but it wasn't by a whale. It was wrecked on a Pacific reef. Did he end up having to be at sea? Yeah, he survived it though. Again, again. Yeah, wow. he's like he, he he's like I learned from my previous experience. I got this. So that is the story of the Essex, the true tale behind the classic novel Moby Dick. Beware of the white whale. Yes. I what yeah. Well, I haven't Mo- read Moby Dick, so Moby Dick really. is more alright, so I believe White Whale, Captain Ahab. White whale causes Captain Ahab to lose his leg. Captain Ahab vows revenge to kill the white whale. In his seeking revenge, he destroys his own boat and ends up killing himself. So it's a tale of like you get so focused on revenge that you end up killing yourself. All right. Yes. I read like 20 pages in third grade. Well, th- there you go. Yeah. Now you got to go read. Everyone needs to go read Moby Dick. Yes. Yes. Thank you for listening. Thank you for tuning in to History Class After Hours, the show where we talk about the things your history teachers didn't have time to teach you. If you wanted to stay updated on upcoming events for the History Club, please visit www.starsmillhistoryc.wixsite.com forward slash 2020. If you liked this episode, please share it with your friends and subscribe to our channel on iTunes Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening. Be on the lookout for new episodes, and we'll be posting every week. Until next time, stay curious.